This is the Child Discipleship Podcast powered by Awana. My name is Ross Cochran. You know who you are. Thank you for listening. Uh, y'all, you've got a really good one today. I am joined by Pastor Rich Lodas. Pastor Rich, welcome to the podcast, sir. Ross, thanks so much for the kind invitation. So good to be with you. Now, you are going to be an upcoming speaker at the Child Discipleship Forum. Um, folks, if you haven't heard about the forum, I would love for you to check out the show notes wherever you are listening or watching. But um, we're going to talk more about that here in a little bit. But for now, uh, Rich, I certainly know a lot about you. I feel like most of my, uh, I feel like there's some sort of rule you've set up with the internet where like every eighth Instagram post or every fourth (laughs) podcast, you're in somehow. So um, I don't know how you've worked that out on my personal algorithm, but I appreciate it. But for folks who maybe have a slightly different algorithm, can you let folks know a little bit bit about New Life Fellowship where you are the uh, lead pastor? Yeah, yeah. I have had the great privilege of pastoring at New Life for 15 years, uh, the last 10 years as the lead pastor. Uh, New Life started in 1987. There was a guy named Pete Scazzaro who wrote a number of books on emotionally healthy spirituality. He started the church and uh, I joined in 2008 and went on a journey to succeed him. Uh, New Life is, um, it's one of the most amazing places in the world. Uh, we are in an area in Queens, New York City, what National Geographic called uh, the most diverse zip code in the world. And so 123 languages spoken in the neighborhood, 75 nations represented in our congregation. At least that was the last time we did a poll like that was in about 2017, 2018. So it might it, it might be higher than that at this point. Yeah. Uh, so at least 75 nations represented in our congregation. And um you're going to find the kind of diversity. It's, it's not just ethnic and racial, cultural diversity. It's generational diversity, socioeconomic diversity, uh, and diversity all across so many other uh, what would be considered landmines around how do we see the world and politics and all that. So it is, in some ways, one of the most beautiful places in the world, in some places, one of the most dangerous places in the world because of the nature of our diversity and our proximity. But uh, so glad to be there, Pastor. Yeah. We could spend the entire conversation talking about emotional health and just the context of what it's like to be a pastor in Queens. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would encourage people to check out both. These are both linked in the show notes. Rich's, Rich's two books, uh, Good and Beautiful and Kind, um, which came out last year, and The Deeply Formed Life, which came out in 2021, which was named Christianity Today's uh, Spiritual Formation Book of the Year. Um, which as someone who's never written a spiritual formation book of the year or any other book, um, I would say that's very well done. Both of those books, I think, speak to something that is at the core Mm. DNA of not only your church, but clearly your writings, your teaching, everything that you do, which is they, if someone's following you on, even on just on social media, they see you talking about the the whole person Mm. in this countercultural pace of living. Mm. And I think it's pretty remarkable that you do that while living in Queens. <laughs> so how do you define mm. that, that what it means to be a whole person, what it, the sort of mm. the core essence mm. of that ministry, emotional health. Yeah. And we'll use the, just for purposes of handle for someone who's walking in for the first time into your church. Yeah. What's that difference look like? Yeah, you know, when I think about wholeness, it's, it's sometimes it's just good to name what it's not. 
Uh, wholeness is not perfection. Wholeness is not a lack of trouble in your life. Wholeness does not mean that there's no areas of struggle. Um, uh, that's often a picture of wholeness, that we have our act together. Uh, nothing's missing. Uh, no gaps. But when I think about wholeness, Ross, I think there are three words that I try to use on a regular basis in our church to get at the nuances of it. And the three words I use are integrity, integration, and intimacy. Mm-hmm. And uh, by integrity, I'm really, first of all, talking about congruence, that there's congruence between what's happening on the inside of my life and what's happening on the outside of my life. Uh, by integrity, I also mean um, you know, my working definition of integrity is not living something perfectly, but wrestling with something faithfully. Uh, because what makes someone a person of integrity is not perfection. Uh, it's not that uh, we've mastered everything, but that we're faithfully wrestling with something. And so wholeness, I believe, emerges out of faithful wrestling and congruence. What's happening on the inside is consistent with what's happening on the outside. Wholeness is also about integration. So there's integrity and then there's integration. And by integration, what I'm getting at there is it is this ability to hold together aspects of who we are in ways that resist compartmentalization. Um, you know, in, in, in psychology language, there's the, you know, language of like splitting ourselves, that there's certain parts about ourselves that we don't like. And we distance ourselves from that. I'll just, for the sake of just illustration, it could be, uh, there's just uh, our anger. There's, there's yeah. parts of our anger, our side of us that we're, we're angry people. And to be uh, human is to experience anger. And lots of people don't know what to do with their anger, which is why in church contexts, uh, there's lots of lying in the church because of we compartmentalize so much that we have not given ourselves permission to embrace and to submit certain aspects of our lives to God. And so integration, we're holding together all of who we are. We are we're complicated people, uh, but we're not trying to shut out certain aspects of our lives, believing that, that that's what makes us really pleasing to God and pleasing to others. Uh, the third piece about wholeness is intimacy. And the only reason I use intimacy is because I like alliteration, Ross. I'm a preacher. So, <laughs> But what I'm really getting at there is love. Uh, wholeness, following Jesus, is about a life that's marked by love, um, a strong love, a love not simply rooted in sentimentality, good feelings, a love that's rooted in um, uh, negotiating differences well, a love that's rooted in sacrificial living, a, a love that's rooted in seeing the best in others, a love that's rooted in holding together truth and grace and grace and truth. So wholeness for me is really the, the, the combination of those three words, integrity, integration, and intimacy. Hmm. Oh man. Okay. Well, now we could spend an, another entire <laughs> podcast just talking about that. So for purposes of drawing a connection, I think what's really critical, and especially for the context of what we do here at Awana, you know, one of the things that we do, we talk about at Awana all the time is about the power of what we would refer to as the presence of a loving, caring adult mm-hmm. in the life of a child. Mm-hmm. We did this big research project in partner with, partnership with the Barna Group called Children's Ministry in a New Reality. And the idea, one of the many sort of findings to it, there are so many things in there. It was sort of like... Uh, 
this happens with other, I should update my reference here. This happens with lots of research projects, but it's kind of like the five love languages where you read it and it's like, there wasn't anything revolutionary, but it put languages, yeah. language to things that we felt. Yeah. One of which was the power of just one, one adult in the life of a child mm. drastically changes the outcomes, both spiritually and non-spiritually for that child. And when I think about integrity, I think that's one of the things that if I'm looking at my own kids or the kids of my life, mm -hmm. it's one of the chief things. I want to pass on all of those things, obviously, but it's one of the first things, you know, my, my oldest is seven. My youngest is um, three and a half when you and I are having this conversation. And it's one of the things that I think is most top of mind on how we begin to do this, how we begin to raise our kids with mm -hmm. integrity. Mm-hmm. But when you look at, you know, emotional health and how you do this, how do you begin to connect the conversations you have every day with adults to kids? Mm -hmm. Because obviously we here at Awana, that's the work we try to do every day. Yes. You know, what I've discovered uh, being a pastor at New Life across multi-generational, multi-generational church, which includes, and, you know, I've had plenty of spaces where I have been in proximity uh, to teenagers and elementary students and middle schoolers and all that. And then having a 14-year-old and a nine-year-old myself, um, I, I've seen this up close almost every night at the dinner table. Right. What I've discovered is um, following Jesus as an adult and following Jesus as a child is actually very uh, quite similar. Uh, I, I think we have in many ways overcomplicated this. I'll give you one example around the integrity uh, question. Again, integrity is not about living something perfectly, but wrestling with something faithfully. Integrity is about congruence. What's happening on the inside is consistent with what's happening on the outside, which is to say that the work of integrity, one of the works of integrity, is to help people navigate their interior lives well. Um, the, the reason why there's often such a difference between what's really happening on the inside and what's happening on the outside, which comes to light in moral failures, it comes to light in uh, kind of disproportionate reactions to something, blow-ups and such, uh, unresolved conflicts. So much of that has to do with our inability to really navigate the interior of our own lives. And so at our church, we use a tool uh, called Exploring the Iceberg. And exploring the iceberg is a very simple tool. The premise is, you know, 10% of the iceberg is seen, visible to the naked eye, and 90% is beneath the surface. And there's four fundamental questions. And I've done this with my children. I've done this with PhDs and seminarians. I've done this with business leaders and everyone else in between. Uh, questions like, four questions. What are you mad about? What are you sad about? What are you anxious about? What are you glad about? And then not just what are you, but what's beneath that? And I can't tell you how many times I've done this with people of all ages. And what am I trying to do in that space? What are we trying to do in that? We're trying to help people live in truth. Uh, there's only one place that God doesn't dwell, and that's in illusion. And so we're trying to help people live in truth. And the degree to which we live in truth is the degree to which we open ourselves up to God's presence. And so in, in a tool simply like that, exploring the iceberg, 
we are on the way towards integrity. And, and I think um, uh, these things are applicable across the board. Yeah. That sound you heard earlier when you said following Jesus as a child and an adult, isn't that different? Was the sound of just every child pastor listening, just screaming, yes, thank <laughs> you, right? Like, Because we have overcomplicated it. We have yeah. made these things distinct in far too many churches, mm. certainly in the West, but where it's, it's antithetical to the gospel. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Denise Kiesbo, a uh, friend of the show, always said, you know, there's no junior Holy Spirit. <laughs> Um, so when, if they're an eight year old and they've accepted Jesus or insert whatever language yeah. is appropriate for your theological context, you can send your angry emails about that to <laughs> Ross at awada.org. If that's not your uh, favorite language, they're a brother or sister in Christ, mm -hmm. that that is what scripture tells us. And as a result, I think we have to pursue those relationships and pursue child discipleship with the same level of intentionality that mm -hmm. you're talking about with adults. And I love the idea that in the, in a tool like the iceberg mm -hmm. um, questions, the adults and the kids are getting the same questions. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, we, we've worked pretty hard on trying to extend these tools across the board because they're universally applicable. And what, here's what I discovered. And this is the gift of being in a very diverse, um, uh, uh, congregation where lots of first generation immigrants, you know, half of Queens is foreign born. And so we've had to work really hard to uh, simplify language uh, to make it equally accessible to everyone. Uh, and so even my, my first two books, um, the way I even wrote those books, uh, I had the help from my uh, great editors who said, you know, think about your 13 year old daughter as you're writing this, think about your child. And um, can she get what you're, what you're saying here? Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. If you've been on the fence about registering for the child discipleship forum, now's the time you still have a chance to save on registration through August 25th. You'll save $50 per seat. When you sign up, you can come as a solo act, or you can save a couple hundred bucks when you bring your whole ministry team. The CDF experience is something you'll want to talk about and process with other people who are fueled, like you, by forming strong faith in the kids in your community. Join us in Nashville September 21st and 22nd, or sign up to attend online. You'll hear from spirit-filled, Bible-minded speakers like Sam Luce and Rebecca Lyons. Chinway Williams is talking about childhood trauma and what it means for discipleship. Ed Stetzer will be speaking again at this year's forum. You really need to be there. So go to childdiscipleshipforum.com and register today so you don't miss out on our best summer pricing available. And so I've worked really hard to um, think about the teenager in my own writings for the first two books. And I think I think when, when that's happened, it's been amazing to see this doesn't just connect with the teenager, it connects with everyone else across the board. So um, yeah, it's something I've been discovering. Yeah. I knew that I liked your books because I read at a 13 year old level. So that makes sense. <laughs> um, no. Uh, so, you know, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about is, you know, at a one of so much of why we exist is to partner with a local church mm. in whatever context she needs um, for the sake of child discipleship, for the sake of the future of the faith. And yet we know one of the biggest challenges that leaders in, 
and parents have is that when we talk to them about child discipleship, when we talk to them about even some of the conversation you and I are having, we get this look of like, I don't know what that is. Mm. Mm. Or that's too hard or I'm too tired. Yeah. And usually when we dig into that, in many cases, it's because they don't actually recognize that terminology because they were never discipled themselves. Yes. Yes. As someone who went through emotionally healthy spirituality, I think about the context of, you know, you discovered like, oh, I'm not nearly as emotionally healthy as I thought I was. <laughs> right. Um, so if I'm a leader and I'm recognizing this tension, yes. I'm a leader and I'm recognizing like I have these kids, these adults, whatever the context is in my care mm-hmm. that God has clearly put in my life to disciple, to lead to a level of Christ likeness. Mm-hmm. But I myself was never given that example. Yeah. How do we, how do I walk through that tension? Because mm. that tension's real. But I also think so is the biblical mandate to make disciples. Yeah. Ross, this is a very personal question for me because I, I think I have been fumbling forward as a parent trying to disciple my own children. Uh, I did not grow up in a Christian home. I grew up in a home quite um, indifferent towards Christianity. I became a Christian at 19 years of age. I was not this, my list 15 family members came to Christ in the same night uh, in a church in Brooklyn. My parents, my uh, 16 year old brother, uh, eight year old sisters, another 12 year old sister. So we were all of us and cousins dogs. Everyone came to Christ that night <laughs> and uh, <laughs> baptized a dog as well. Sure. And um, Why not? And so uh, Again, send your emails yeah. to Ross. You gotta <laughs> work. And um, here's what I discovered. Um, when, I had, when Rosie and I had children, um, I did not have a clue. I knew how to pastor a church, but did not know how to disciple my children. And Rosie, on the other hand, uh, grew up in a home that was Christian, and that wasn't just Christian. Her mother and father um, continue to be just remarkable disciples, and so they created an environment at home where that just became so much more natural. Um, and so, number one, I've learned a lot from Rosie around this. Um, and so, a couple of things that comes to mind. I think number one, I think just uh, naming. We, we all come from different backgrounds, different stories, different histories, and so um, uh, don't allow the lack of what you receive to kind of fill you with shame and adequacy. Uh, to your point, what uh, what what children first of all need is a, a attunement. They they need um, a, someone who's going to be present to them. And so it's amazing how even how much discipleship can happen by just our presence. And so, uh, so and so is showing up. Even before we've said a word, our very presence provides a level of stability, a level of consistency, a level of, uh, there's an anchor to my life because you're just showing up there. And so, uh, you, you know, you just showing up. Praise the Lord. I mean, uh, uh, half of the discipleship uh, uh, struggle is already uh, met there. Beyond that, I, I think I, I think discipleship doesn't require us to um, to be theologians and to be scholars, uh, but I do think it requires us to be um, honest about the questions that we carry about our own wrestling uh, and um, 
I, I, so that's number one. I think it does require space for honest questions. And I think what children need are spaces where their questions um, can be heard. Um, uh, no easy answers. I mean, I have two children. They, I mean, they, they ask me, I mean, I, I have a master's of divinity. I mean, I'm a, I love theology and their questions. I'm just like, well, I, I have no clue. Why are they asking me this question? Now I can either shut them down and say, because I said so, whatever, or I could, right. we can wrestle together and say, yeah. you know, let's talk about it. But I, I think, uh, asking good questions and, um, uh, being present to their concerns, their doubts, their struggles, I think is part of the discipleship journey. Uh, and in terms of like, I am a big proponent of, I love the entire, you know, Holy Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, all the rest. Um, I, I, I have people who are trying to disciple others live in the words of Jesus. Uh, and, and so whether we're talking about Matthew five through seven and the sermon on the Mount, whether we're talking about Jesus's words in John 15 about abide in me and I, and you, I think what discipleship requires is a, a radical attention to the life and words of Jesus Christ. And so I think if you're struggling right now, one of the great gifts is immerse yourself in the words of Jesus and ask questions of yourself. What might Jesus be saying? What am I struggling with? And then sharing. I think preaching for me, Ross, I preach almost every Sunday. So much of my preaching is me working out uh, <laughs> what I think I believe on certain things and, and journey with sure. me. And not that I'm not making definitive statements about who Jesus is and what the gospel is, but I'm giving people a sneak a, a peek into my own wrestling and my own journey. And I think um, if we can normalize some of these things, I think our discipleship journey would uh, be a bit healthier in terms of the shame or the sense of inadequacy that many people feel. Yeah. I mean, I connected back to what we were talking about at the start of this conversation about just, we have made discipleship not normal. Mm -hmm. And when, what I love about you as a communicator, what I love about some of the stuff you're saying of like, Emotional health might be an easier term for you, dear listener, to grab onto, or spiritual health. And there's something about the idea of immersing, um, um, immersion. Good thing I don't talk for a living. <laughs> Putting yourself into the words of Jesus mm. that you know how to do. Mm. And I would encourage those who do feel just in line with what we're just saying to start there because ultimately the thing that every time I ask a version of this question, what always becomes clear is that God is doing the work. Mm. The reason we have data to support what you're saying about how just showing up, we, we would call that belonging, helping a child feel like they belong. Yeah. Just showing up does so much of the work. And the reason is because the Holy spirit is the one actually doing the deception. Mm -hmm. So you don't need to come with answers to those questions, mm -hmm. but when you come with your presence and the willingness to admit your faults, children can't help but feel safe yeah. and like they can come as they are. Mm -hmm. And especially at a time like this, we want them to come to us with their questions. Yes. Because they will find answers elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the things though that you touched on and I want to be, I want to couch this a little bit with it's attention that I think everybody who listens carries, but I'm curious how you would articulate this. You, you literally wrote books about 
emotional healthy spirituality essentially right mm-hmm. i'm going to put a handle to that cuz um like i was saying before we started i have started um good beautiful and kind but i have not finished it yet um and you talk about this every sunday mm-hmm. you carry this tension though because then you go home and then you have to be just dad mhm and i would imagine you like me or like anybody else who's listening have those moments where you're like no, I literally like I I wrote the book about this. Like I know what is supposed <laughs> to happen. How come this isn't happening in my dinner table the way that it's yeah. it's supposed to happen? Yeah. Or you have a I had a Roman seven fifteen moment yesterday of trying to figure out like no I I did the wrong thing I'm mm. in the wrong here like how do you navigate life with ministry yeah while honoring being emotionally healthy in your own life yeah. It's a great question because I think um, this, this. I was meeting with one of our congregants uh, earlier this week as she was uh, expressing her frustration with her mother, and um, and she's saying, "I took the classes and I've done the emotionally healthy stuff there, and I find myself stuck." And I thought, "Well, first of all, join the club because the people <laughs> who are nearest and dearest to us are often the people who." we find most difficult to love well, uh, the people who most easily trigger us. Uh, I mean, there there is those people that we're closest to, um, which is why um, it might've been uh, Mother Teresa or someone who said like, it's it's really easy to to love those people across the world uh, and, and not to love well the people within our own homes. Uh, so I think number one, just normalize. I, I I think I've tried to, with varying degrees of success, normalizing um, the difference between my home and uh, the work that I do as a pastor. It's a lot. I mean, I I was listening to this woman talk about her mother, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm able to be present. I'm able to ask good questions. I'm able to be objective. Why? Because in, in some ways, I'm not going home to that environment. So it's number one, generally easier for me to, like, mm. a, like a counselor, just be having a sense of emotional distance. But when I get home, and we're talking about ne- negotiating our own differences and our own values, uh, it's just that much harder. So I think number one, normalizing that. Secondly, you know, this is where I believe the Christian story and the Christian message is the best message in the world because it is one that's marked by great repentance and forgiveness. That is the story. Uh, Our home, I think we've tried to do this well with our children, that when, whenever we are harsh with our children unnecessarily and, uh, or, uh, you know, just say a word that maybe uh, hurts them, uh, that Rosie and I have worked really hard to name our own areas of confession and sin before our children and to do the same between them and creating an environment of repentance and forgiveness. And so, um, again, wholeness, integrity is not living it perfectly, but how do we, um, name the inconsistencies, the contradictions, uh, and to have repentance and forgiveness lead the way. And, um, I've done lots of repenting as a parent. I've done lots of repenting as, uh, as, a as a husband. And I've had to do lots of forgiving uh, and to request forgiveness. And so 
Um, I don't think that's necessarily the only, that's the silver bullet that's going to save everything. But I do think that is a significant part of how I have tried to hold on to who I am when I'm pastoring and working. They want to get home. Um, and, uh, and I, and now the goal is integrity is, uh, doing my best to limit the gap, uh, mm. uh, between, you know, I, uh, now if I find myself one persona at work and then I'm, I'm, I'm a tyrant at home, I mean, I think, you know what, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about here, but I'm talking about narrowing the gap of where's there inconsistency or contradictions in my home life and my work life. And what does it mean for, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, to narrow that gap little by little? And I think that begins by our own confession, repentance, forgiveness. Uh, and I think I've tried to, with varying degrees of success, live into that. If you've heard about childdiscipleship.com, then you've heard it's chock full of resources for kids ministers, parents, anyone raising kids to be lifelong Christ followers. The site's almost a year old now, and like any other one-year-old, whoo, has it grown. If you head to childdiscipleship.com today, you're going to find simple ways to weave faith into everyday summer activities. You're going to find questions and conversation starters to ask your kids after church to help continue the conversation around child discipleship. You're also going to find tools to walk kids through gender identity questions, a biblical guide for anxiety, and resources dedicated to answering the question, how do I share the gospel with kids? Resources and articles and podcast conversations are constantly being added to the site. So go ahead and bookmark it and make childdiscipleship.com your go-to for equipping yourself and your team to form lasting faith in kids. Hey, before we get back to this episode, I need your help. You know, we want this podcast to serve you and your ministry in the best way possible. But to do that, I need to learn a little more about you. So wherever you're listening, you'll see a link for a survey. And if you answer those questions about yourself and your ministry, that will dramatically help the show. And to make it even more worthwhile, we'll randomly select a few folks who fill out the survey and thank them with an Amazon gift card. Full details and rules are in the show notes. So thank you for listening. And now let's get back to the conversation. Man, okay. There's a couple things, a couple more things I want to hit before we, yeah. before we wrap things up. So like I said at the beginning of the conversation, you are one of our speakers at the upcoming Child Deception Forum people can find out more about in the show notes wherever you're listening like i always say if you don't know what show notes are that's okay just uh look up however you're hearing rich and i talk <laughs> in the word show notes and uh you'll be able to find out uh more information you through just on a sunday but also through speaking at lots of different gatherings like this and hosting plenty of gatherings like this you experience um what it's like to be in a room of leaders who are united in mission. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to the value of what it's of this mm. for folks to be connected in a room of like-minded individuals? Mm. Because I think in a time like this, it becomes easy to be like, uh, I don't know if I, you know, maybe I'll catch it online. I don't know. And then you wind up missing it. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think about, I, I recently preached a sermon on friendship and uh, it was C.S. Lewis who said something to the effect of um, a friend is born the moment that you say, what you too, I thought I was the only one. And I think these spaces are number one places for uh, existing and emerging friendships to be cultivated and developed. And it is pretty lonely out there to be leaders in um, ministry capacities. Um, people, there's a weight that you carry, a spiritual authority that you that you bear. And I think um, sometimes. Uh, getting in a room with other people who are on a very similar journey, uh, number one, reminds you that you're not alone. Uh, number two, I, I do think that there's a spiritual power that becomes available to us uh, for the sake of our own perseverance. Uh, I think it's an opportunity to get fresh vision, uh, an opportunity to step away from the work. You know, I, I'm in conversation with many ministry leaders around the country. And to step away from their work is very difficult for a number of reasons. Number one, uh, whether it's addiction or whether it's out of necessity because of the lack of resources or whatever. But um, my predecessor said to me once, he said, Rich, the greatest gift you can give the church is your ongoing transformation in Jesus Christ. That is the greatest gift you can give New Life Fellowship Church, the church that I pastor. Uh, and so to go in a, to a space like this, where there's learning environments, connection, this is good for your own spiritual health. And the greatest gift that you give is not the programs you create. It's not the teaching that you provide. It's who you are becoming in Jesus Christ, that your very life is a witness to Jesus. And I think a space like this uh, not just creates friendship, but it, it offers a, a formative space as well uh, for the leadership journey. I couldn't agree more, but I, I, I think one of the things I asked that because I think it's really critical, like what you were saying about this national perspective and this pressure that leaders around the country feel of, I can't get away for that week. I can't. Yeah. Um, and like you said, some of that is genuinely real because of lack of resources. And some of that is, is addictive tendencies. Yeah. And either way, you still need to evaluate being in experiences like the CDF yeah. to get away for the sake of your own transformation. Ross, I'll say it this way. I went on sabbatical. Our, our pastors get sabbaticals every seven years. And in 2019, I went on sabbatical. You know, 2019, right before the world went crazy. So it was God was yeah. preparing me here. And before I left, and this is, people can be blessed and borrow and use this, okay? The sermon before I left for sabbatical I preached Jesus's words, making it clear, everyone, because if you get emails, Ross, you're going to get the emails, not me here. Yeah. Uh, I made it clear that this is not a one-to-one -one comparison, but it's illustrative. And I said, Jesus tells his disciples, it is better for you that I go. Uh, and that was my <laughs> sermon text before I went on my four-month sabbatical. It is better for you that I go. And... Um, and I think part of that is uh, we need, uh, w there are times where we need to take a break. And so whether it's a weekend, whether it's an extended period of vacation or sabbatical, um, one of the great gifts that we give the people we lead, it might sound uh, um, paradoxical or counterintuitive, is our absence. Uh, but it's a creative absence, uh, knowing that 
in these spaces, God is doing something in me so that as I return and when I return, I'm, I'm leading from a deeper center. And that's the hope here. Amen. Mm. All right. Before we wrap up, um, like I mentioned, I've started digging into Beautiful and Kind, and I'm really excited to keep keep the conversation going. But there's two things that I saw in the description, literally the description <laughs> that I wanted to ask you about, which is um, it, you talk about how Jesus offers a way of being human that is both strong and tender enough to tear down the walls of hostility. Mm. And when I look at my young kids, what I want them to know about Jesus is a full picture of who Jesus is, mm -hmm. because I think about how so many kids and so many adults get a one dimensional picture of Jesus. Mm -hmm. But can you explain for folks what you mean when you describe Jesus as strong and tender enough to tear down those walls? Yeah. Here, here's a, here's a nice biblical way of thinking about that. Uh, the strong and tender um, another way that the gospel, that John, the gospel writer talks about it is Jesus is full of grace and truth. And um, Jesus holds together aspects of being human and aspects of spirituality and discipleship that often the world and the church segments. And so um, I love that Jesus is not just a little bit full of grace and then really full of truth or vice versa. He's able to hold intention, truth, and grace. And so to be strong requires us to live in truth, to speak truth, um, to name the places where walls are built up, um, and to do our best by the grace of God to name these realities, not to live with indifference and apathy, uh, but to truly enter into those spaces uh, and at the same time, it requires us to carry grace with us. Uh, the, the world, you could argue, really specializes in truth. I mean, you think about the world. I'm just speaking the truth. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna say it out there. And um, uh, and and yet, what's what's also missing is is grace. What does it mean to be tender? What does it mean to be merciful, compassionate? What does it mean to remain connected? In family system language, systems language, it's the language of self differentiation or what I call calm presence. Uh, and what is differentiation or calm presence? It's this, it's this ability or this process of remaining close and curious to God, close and curious to myself, and close and curious to others, especially in times of high anxiety, and resisting the polar opposite pull of cutting people off or being enmeshed into them. For me, that is what grace and truth is about. That's what uh, leading strong and tenders about not just stating truth, but also remaining connected. And that's what I want for my children. I want my children to have integrity around, you know, things that matter in the world, uh, around the barriers that exist, around the injustices that we see. Yet at the same time, I want them to be tender-hearted. I want them to be attuned to others. I want them to be empathetic. I want them to be merciful and compassionate. And that's what we see in our Lord Jesus. Whew. People can get the book in the show notes. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, and I think this is going to be a good place to leave it, is that you talk about healthy conflict in the book. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask you a question that is very unfair to ask at the end of an interview. But <laughs> what does healthy conflict look like in 2023? <laughs> Well, I, I, I think I'll say it in two ways. Okay, uh, so three, three, um, 
three simple ways to think about healthy conflict. Number one, I think there's just normalizing it. Number two, there's healthy speech. Number three, there's healthy listening, um, which is stuff that we teach pre-K elementary uh, kids here. So normalizing it. Um, here's what I know to be true about conflict. Most folks don't know how to deal with conflict because they have not regarded it as something that is a human necessity. Uh, we have seen it as um, as something that is inconsistent with healthy relationships. We have seen conflict as something to be avoided like the plague. Uh, and this is what happens, Ross. Uh, I, I see this as a pastor all the time. Um, there are three stages of relationships, and I write about this here. There, there is the heavenly stage, the hellish stage, and the holding the tension stage. The heavenly stage is the first stage of, uh, you know, a new romantic relationship, new church. I know all the people who are new to our church. Why? Because they talk about our church with the most glowing terms, the best place ever. <laughs> wow, the people are so nice. And I'm like, it sounds like you've been here for like a th- three weeks, you know? And so, and our church is really wonderful, but, but our church, like every other church has issues and conflicts and difficult people and emotionally immature people, all the rest. And so there's the heavenly stage. And then what inevitably happens because we're human beings is we, we realize, oh, so-and-so votes differently than me. Oh, so-and-so doesn't see this issue in the same way that I regard this issue. And that that introduces this kind of hellish stage, like, well, where am I? Uh, Why am I with these people? And it is at this point where people leave a relationship, end the job, leave a church, because we have not learned to negotiate our differences well. And so I think there's the normalizing part. I think healthy conflict requires us, first of all, to listen well, this is incarn. We call this incarnational listening at New Life, entering into the world of someone else, like Jesus does in John one fourteen, which requires us to pay attention to our bodies, our reactivity, um, our reactions. You know, one of the things we say is, "What does my reaction tell me about me?" I know what my reaction tells me about somebody else, but what does my reaction tell me about me? How can I get it to a place Ooh. when I can truly listen to someone and ask clarifying, curious questions? That's the listening piece. And then what does it mean to speak health in a healthy way? What does it mean to speak uh, with kindness and with honesty and being uh, forthright and being timely? Um, you know, how do I do these things? And so I think that the root of our problems with conflict is people don't know how to speak and people don't know how to listen. And uh, two things that we tried to teach children at a very early age, which becomes applicable until the day we die. <laughs> Child Discipleship Podcast is powered by Awana. Thanks to the donations of generous folks like you, Awana partners with 62,000 churches in 130 countries to make resilient disciples. When you give to Awana, you are investing in lasting faith. Young people who will engage the culture with the gospel and fearlessly lead the church into the future. To make a donation to this mission, go to awana.org donate. Subscribe to the podcast today so you never miss an episode and check out the show notes of today's episode for relevant links from this conversation, as well as information about other podcasts from Awana. The podcast is produced and hosted by me, Ross Cochran. Our theme song is Fresh Air by Christian hip hop artist Josiah Williams and Hits by Jude. You also heard All Let Go 
provided by Josiah Williams from his album, Rerouting 2. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week.